The Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. We know this catastrophe is the Genesis flood, which is described in detail in Genesis 6 through 8. More than just a natural disaster, the Bible describes the flood as God's great judgment upon mankind but also as an example of his infinite grace as he preserved Noah and his family throughout this cataclysm. Welcome to this week's broadcast of Science, Scripture, and Salvation. This month, the Institute for Creation Research is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the book that launched the modern creation science movement, The Genesis Flood, authored by Drs. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. During the month of February, we will be presenting a special four-part series on the Genesis Flood through a vintage audio presentation by ICR's founder, Dr. Henry Morris. And now, let's join Dr. Morris for part three of the Genesis Flood. Now, the idea is, of course, that the, over the ages, that uh, sediments were eroded from the continents and transported to the ocean and deposited on the continental shelf or the floodplain or somewhere. And in the process of transportation, uh, animals might get caught up in the sediments and be transported and finally buried with the sediments and then after a long period of time they would become fossilized. And the sediments would turn into rock, you'd have the sediment becoming a, a sandstone or a shale or a limestone or some other sedimentary rock and the fossil remains would be preserved there. And uh, so now we find the forms of life that lived in that former age and of course the deeper down the sediments are, the idea is that the older the rocks are and the older the forms of life are. But now the problem is with that, supposedly in the geological column, the oldest ones ought to be on the bottom. But there are lots and lots of places where there are old formations on top of young formations. And so you can't go by the order of deposition. Now let me read a statement from a standard textbook in geology by von Ingel and Castor. And they're talking about the geological column and how that got to be that way, where, we, where it came from. In other words, you don't find this out in the field anywhere. You can go to the Grand Canyon or any other place where there are a lot of geological formations exposed and you'll never find that geological column. The only place you'll ever find it is in the textbook. It doesn't exist in the real world at all. It's an artificial construct that's been built up by various devices. And let me read what those devices were. These authors say, if a pile were to be made by using the greatest thicknesses of the sedimentary beds at each geological age, it would be at least 100 miles high. And so the geological column or the geological timetable represents 100 miles at least of sedimentary thickness of rocks. Now, some authors would say up to 200 miles, but at least 100 miles. Whereas the greatest known geological column in the world is only about 15 to 20 miles, some maybe in the Gulf Coast region. And many places there's nothing at all there. The crystalline bottom rocks are right on the surface, like up in the Canadian Shield. And the average around the world for the geological column is one mile. So where do you get the 100 miles? Well, he goes on to say, it's of course impossible to have even a considerable fraction of this at one place. But by application of the principle of superposition, lithologic identification, recognition of unconformities and reference to fossil successions, both the thick and the thin masses are correlated with other beds at other sites. Thus there is established in detail the stratigraphic succession for all the geological ages. So that's the way it was done. Now, pardon me for having to use geological terms here. And I know this may not be familiar to many people unless they've taken a course in geology, but it, it is important to try to understand where they got this because this is the main bulwark of the theory of evolution, this geological record with the fossil record. 
They say they did it by superposition, lithologic identification, recognition of unconformities, and reference to fossil successions, those four devices. Well, as far as superposition is concerned, as you can see, there are lots of places where there are old rocks on top of young rocks, so it isn't necessarily true that the oldest rocks are on the bottom. So that isn't necessarily the way to do it. And if you question that, let me read a statement from an article by Dr. B.F. Ryan, who says, in many places, the oceanic sediments of which the mountains are composed are inverted with older sediments lying on top of the younger ones. He says that's true in many places. Now that applies to whole formations, whole ages are inverted, but it also applies to individual fossils where fossils from different ages occur together. And there might be an individual fossil or a few fossils that uh, are old that are above some that are young. This is a very recent article by Dr. Cutler and Dr. Plessa of the Department of Geoscience, University of Arizona. And this was published just uh, this past June, so it's very recent. And the title of the article is Fossils Out of Sequence. And they say this, any sequence at which an older fossil occurs above a younger one is stratigraphically disordered. Scales of stratigraphic disorder may be from millimeters to many meters. Stratigraphic disorder is produced by the physical or biogenic mixing of fossiliferous sediments and the reworking of older previously described hard parts into younger sediments. Well, that's a way that maybe they can explain it, that they're out of order. But they do say, since these processes occur to an extent in virtually all sedimentary systems, stratigraphic disorder at some scale is probably a common feature of the fossil record. So it simply is not true that you find them in the same order all over the world. And then down here a little further, they say, the widespread occurrence of these anomalies in dated sections suggests that disorder should be taken seriously by paleobiologists and stratigraphers working at these stratigraphic scales. Well, you can't depend on superposition then as a means of determining the age of a rock and where it ought to fit into the geological column. How about the next one, the lithologic identification? Now that term, lithology, has to do with the type of rock. So the idea would be that maybe granites occur in one geological age, uh, shales in another age, limestones in another age, and so on. And early geologists, some of them did believe that. But they don't believe that anymore because they now know that rocks of every type occur in every geological age. You can find granites and basalts and metamorphic rocks and limestones and shales, rocks of every type and every age. And furthermore, the minerals in the rocks you can find in every age. And the different types of structures in the, like the great faults and folds and so forth occur in every age. And even coal and oil occur in rocks of just about every age. And so the type of the rock or the contents of the rock don't tell you anything about the age of the rock. Some might say, well, what about uranium lead systems, radiogenic minerals in rocks. Don't they tell you the age of the rocks? No, because these radiogenic minerals, not usually used to get the age of a sedimentary rock anyway, but only igneous rocks, which is a different subject altogether. But at any rate, all of these ages had been determined long before anybody ever discovered radioactive dating. And so the ages don't depend on radioactive dating at all. And even now, if a radioactive date disagrees with the geological age, It'll be the radioactive age that will be discarded because there are many things that can go wrong with that. But just to note that in passing, that there's nothing about the contents of the rock, even radiogenic minerals, that will tell you the age of a rock. Superposition doesn't tell you the type of the rock, the contents of the rock don't tell you the age. Now what about the next one, which is unconformities? Now I need to define that term. An unconformity is an interface between two formations in which the one above does not conform to that one below. And by conformity, I mean the slope of the strata or the layers 
Now you've all seen, I'm sure, in highway cuts or in canyon sections, these layered rocks. And you know that sometimes the layers are at some kind of an angle, sometimes they're horizontal. And what, they, what each one of these layers or strata represents is a sedimentary phenomenon. Sediment is being transported by water and then deposited. And then the velocity changes or some other hydraulic factor changes. And so there's another stratum formed and then another. And as long as the deposition process is going on continuously, well, the strata will all be parallel and continuous. But if you come to a place where they are not continuous, where there's an unconformity, the ones below do not conform to those above, you may have tilted strata and then above that horizontal strata. Well, the interface between these two formations is an unconformity. And that's supposed to represent a gap in time. The deposition process is going on continuously as long as the strata are parallel. But now, all of a sudden, we have an erosion period where the deposition process stops and erosion takes place. Probably the particular formation is elevated up above the water surface. In the process, maybe it's tilted. And then erosion begins to take place before finally the water surface rises again and deposition begins to take place once more. Well, that unconformity then represents a gap in time. And so the idea would be that that unconformity surface will represent a time surface and everything below that is one age and everything above that is a later age. No, that doesn't work either. And so Cronus horizon does not conform to the unconformity surface. Now, again, I have to apologize for using geological terms. Isochronus is a Greek, comes from Greek words meaning equal time. And so an isochronous surface is one on which every point does have the same age. It's an isochronous surface, equal time surface. But you see, that cuts across the unconformity surface. This author in the Geological Society Bulletin, Dr. Chang, says many unconformity bounded units are considered to be chronostratigraphic units in spite of the fact that unconformity surfaces inevitably cut across isochronous horizons. Hence, they can't be true chronostratigraphic boundaries. So you can't tell the age of a rock by the unconformity surfaces because these unconformity surfaces may cut across rocks of different ages. Well, how do you do it then? Well, remember there was one other, and that's the reference to fossil successions. And that's really the way. And let me read a statement from Dr. Hollis Hedberg. When he wrote this, he was president of the Geological Society of America, certainly one of the top geologists of the world. He died just very recently. Great man of the field of geology. And he said this, fossils have furnished through their record of the evolution of life on this planet an amazingly effective key to the relative positioning of strata in widely separated regions and from continent to continent. Now you see, he says fossils provide the key to the relative positioning of the strata. Which one's old, which one's young? Fossils do that? How do fossils do that? He says through their record of the evolution of life on this planet. That's how they do that. The idea is, therefore, that if you find fossils in a rock that represent a certain stage of evolution, that will date the rock. If you find fossils representing another stage of evolution, that will date the rock at some different age. The rocks are dated by the age of the fossils based on evolution. That's what he says. Now, that would be okay if we knew that evolution were true, if we had some sort of a divine revelation that evolution were true. Sure, it would take place all over the world the same way, so that if you had rocks representing a certain, fossils representing a certain stage of evolution, that would be the best way to date those rocks, if we knew evolution were true. But how do we know evolution is true? Well, remember that the best way to prove evolution is by the fossil record. And how do fossils prove evolution? Well, because in old rocks you find simple fossils representing long time ago, in young rocks, you find complex fossil representing recent age. And so you have the sequence from old to young preserved in the, in the rocks by the fossils. Well, I guess that would be all right if we knew how to date the rocks 
so that we knew which ones were old and which ones were young. But how do we know how to date the rocks? Well, you date the rocks by the fossils. That's how you date the rocks. And you begin to see, I hope, that we're involved in a vast circle of reasoning here. Each one is the evidence of the other. Each one is the proof of the other. Let me quote, for example, and this kind of illustrates it. There's a circle of reasoning. The proof of evolution is based on the assumption of evolution, actually. In the World Book Encyclopedia, which I guess everybody knows encyclopedias are infallible. It's bound to be right. Uh, the, in, in one volume of this book, volume 15, it says, Paleontology, the study of fossils, is important in the study of geology because the age of the rocks may be determined by the fossils that are found in them. Get the age in the rocks of the other rocks by the fossils. Then in volume 7 of the same encyclopedia, it says, Scientists determine when fossils were formed by finding out the age of the rocks in which they lie. So you date the fossil by the rocks and the rocks by the fossils. Both are based on evolution. So what we really conclude then is that there is no real way to date these rocks. We can't discriminate which one is old and which one is young. In fact, they all could be the same age. In fact, the evidence, I think, for that is overwhelming. Now celebrating over 40 years of ministry, ICR wants you to be equipped with resources that you can count on. To learn more about the Genesis Flood, get your copy of this classic book through the ICR store. Call 800-628-7640 and speak to a customer service representative. Or visit our store online at www.icr.org for this and other creation science resources. And ask about your free subscription to ICR's monthly magazine, Acts and Facts, which gives you timely news on science from a biblical perspective, as well as in-depth articles on biblical apologetics and the creation-evolution debate. Call 800-628-7640 or go online to icr.org for more information. Don't forget to mention the call letters of this station. Thanks again for listening to Science, Scripture, and Salvation.